Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Latikaya and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Davis Mooney. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End Church, and uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning and to continue this series in Colossians. Um, So before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would encourage us and challenge us and build us up in your word this morning. Uh, We praise you and thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you think of when I mention the Secret Service? Uh, If you're anything like me, you may be thinking of those movie scenes of assassination attempts on the president and uh, men in suits scrambling to get him away in his limousine. Uh, But I I was surprised to find out recently that that's not actually how the Secret Service began. It actually was started uh, in 1865, just after the Civil War, uh, to fight the nation's counterfeit currency problem. It's estimated that at that time, nearly one-third of the cash that was in circulation was counterfeit. And uh, people were starting to lose faith in cash, and Abraham Lincoln knew that that would have terrible consequences for the economy, and so he formed the, uh, the Secret Service. And actually, the legislation that, was, that formed the Secret Service was on his desk the night that he was assassinated. Uh, so the Secret Service is now known for its protection of presidents and their families, but fighting counterfeit cash is still a very large part of their mission. And the way that agents train for this is really interesting. They spend hours and hours studying real currency and mastering it so that when uh, they see counterfeit cash, they can identify it immediately. Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, uh, Paul writes to encourage the Colossians uh, in their faith and to protect them from counterfeits. We see this really clearly in verse 4 when he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The Colossians had placed their faith in Christ after they heard about him from a man named Epaphras, who we heard about in uh, chapter 1, verse 7. But now there are people who are coming into the Colossian church, and they're teaching other things. Uh, 
things that sound plausible or attractive, but they're not in line with the, the gospel, which is the good news that Christ has, has died to take away our sins. Now, we don't exactly know what kind of counterfeit Christianity these people were teaching. Um, we do know that Colossae was a very diverse city with a, a wide range of people from a lot of different ethnicities and religions. And so many biblical scholars think that these plausible arguments contained elements of Christianity, but also kind of pieces of Judaism and the local folk religion all smushed together. Um, but Paul, but, but we don't exactly know what those teachings were, but that's, that's kind of the point. Like an agent training other agents to identify the counterfeit, Paul writes to encourage the Colossians and the object of their faith in Christ. So how can this passage guide us, uh, both believers and those who are still exploring faith in Christ today? Well, I think it, it may look very different for us than it did for the Colossians, but I think we're still faced with plausible arguments uh, today. Uh, there are still narr narratives in our society that seem so plausible and that promise so much, but ultimately uh, are not in line with the gospel. They seem like they can lead to so much fulfillment and progress and acceptance, but ultimately they let us down. The pastor Tim Keller writes that there are five narratives in our society that function as self-evident truths, usually expressed in simple slogans that appear to need no justification once stated. And these five narratives are, keep your religious views private. I'm free to do what I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. What right do you have to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them? You have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. These are powerful arguments, aren't they? And I think we've all heard these one way or another in our lives. And I think both believers and non-believers uh, are, are swayed at times by these narratives. Uh, for those of us who may still be exploring faith in Christ, I think it's so easy to get exhausted by these cultural narratives. If they're purely controlled by humans, then it's so easy to get battered and, and blown around as what's right and what's wrong is constantly changing. And I think that we're also starting to see cracks in a culture that's kind of built on keeping up with the Joneses or portraying our best possible life on Instagram. Uh, I think we, we, we're, we want somehow to be anchored and rooted, and we want to come in and rest. And I think those of us who are, are, are Christians are also tempted to fall prey to these plausible arguments. Uh, we're tempted to think that because we have God's grace through Christ, we can do what we want as long as we don't hurt anyone else. Or we, sometimes we're fearful that people will be offended by our faith or that we're on the wrong side of history. But Paul writes to encourage us of the assurance that we have in the gospel. He wants, us, he wants us to learn how to defend against the counterfeit narratives in our lives. And he does so through the big idea that we see in this passage, which is that God roots us in Christ so that we might walk in him. God roots us in Christ so that we might walk in him. And we see this, uh, this big idea three different ways in the passage. We see God's mystery, God's treasure, and God's grammar. So first we get to see God's mystery. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Uh, Eric did a great job last week talking about God's mystery because Paul mentions God's mystery twice in the five verses that come before this passage. Uh, so we won't spend too, too much time here. But Eric said last week that this mystery is a little bit like a punchline. 
it unfolds slowly, and then when it's finally revealed, it's not exactly what you were expecting. Uh, one of my professors at Covenant said it uh, a, a very similar way. He says, this mystery is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be lived within. And in verse 4, Paul says that God's mystery is Christ. He doesn't say that Christ is a key or a clue to the mystery. Christ is the mystery. And it's helpful to turn back to the Old Testament to see how this works. Uh, we, we see glimpses of God's mystery of Christ all throughout the Old Testament, but especially in passages like Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that passage was written about 700 years before Christ was born on the earth. And it was confusing to the original readers. They knew that somehow it meant that God would forgive them, but they couldn't quite figure out who this, this figure that was mentioned in the passage was. But if we go and we read uh, the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, we see that this person is Christ. He's the one who was pierced and crushed on the cross for our iniquities and our sins. He's the one who was wounded so that we could be healed. He's the only way we can experience God's forgiveness and be brought back into relationship with God. No one would have expected that God's plan for the salvation of his people would involve giving his own son to die a shameful death on the cross and then being resurrected to new life three days later. But God's mystery, his son, Jesus Christ, has now been revealed. And last week we saw how God's mystery, uh, Christ, is the heart of Paul's ministry to all people. But now we get to see how the mystery defends the Colossian and the Laodicean Christians against counterfeits. It's what Paul says in verse 1. He says he's struggling specifically for them even though he hasn't seen them face to face. But he gets a little bit more specific about his desire for them and how God's mystery, Christ, empowers his ministry to them. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. He knows that they're, they're facing plausible arguments and that they're tempted to fall to those, those arguments. But he writes to encourage them to stay strong as they grow in Christ. He wants them to be knit together in love. He wants them to grow in a community, uh, in a fellowship that's rooted in Christ. He knows that, that plausible arguments are at their strongest when they have you one-on-one. -on -one. And so he wants the Colossians to be knit together and to grow up in a community uh, in God's love and in their love for one another so that they won't be easily deluded or tricked. And finally, he wants them to reach all the, the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery of Christ. He wants them to grow in their understanding of God's great redemptive acts in the world and in his plan to save his people. He wants them to have full assurance that Christ alone is, is sufficient, and he wants them to grow in Christ together. So in order to identify the counterfeit, you, you study the real thing, and Paul writes so that the Colossians might know the real thing. So how do we apply this? Well, I think, I think there are two ways. So just like Paul wants the Colossians to grow in their full assurance of God's mystery as they defend against counterfeits, I think we too are, are called to grow in our knowledge of Christ and of the gospel. 
As we learn more and more about the ultimate narrative, about God's great story to save his people, to bring them salvation through Christ, we learn more and more how to engage lovingly but, but critically with the counterfeit narratives in our culture. As we grow more and more in our knowledge of the gospel, we grow more and more in our assurance that it's true. I think sometimes we have a tendency to look down a little bit on knowledge. Uh, sometimes we just want to go out and do. And that's a, that's a fine impulse. Uh, we'll see in just a little bit that Paul says that as you grow in your assurance and in your knowledge, that will lead to a response and action. But we can't respond to something if we don't know what it is. We can't defend against the counterfeit if we don't know the real. So Christ's work affects every aspect of our lives, and so we're continually called to be growing in our knowledge of Christ. And this is important, too, for those who are still exploring uh, faith in, in Christ. As we start to see the cracks in some of our counterfeit narratives, don't be afraid to ask questions of your, your Christian friends. Uh, don't be afraid to ask them uh, about what, what the gospel is, about who Christ is, and about uh, what the Bible says about all, all sorts of things like money and relationships and power. And those Christian friends may, may respond and they may say, actually, I'm not quite sure. I'm still learning. Uh, but if you're willing, let's explore this together. And that kind of leads to the second way that I think we're called to apply this, which is Paul says he wants the Colossians to be knit together in love, to become a community and a fellowship that's based on God's mystery of Christ. So growing in our knowledge of the mystery of Christ it involves growing in community. As we see our brothers and sisters around us growing in the gospel, we see what that growth looks like, and it inspires growth in our lives as well. One really tangible way to do this is through community groups. Uh, some of the most helpful and remarkable conversations I've had have been in small groups where someone was willing to say, I don't quite understand this, or I don't quite uh, see how this works in our lives. And then someone else says, yeah, I don't really get that either. And then we have this conversation around the Bible, uh, and we grow in that together. It's really beautiful as the Lord knits his people together, and as they grow up in their knowledge and their assurance of Christ together. So we've seen God's mystery, and now we get to see God's treasure, which we see in verses 3 through 5. Paul says that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So what's Paul doing here? Well, again, I think he's holding up the real thing. He's pointing the Colossians to Christ as he's teaching them to spot the counterfeit. So like I said, we don't know too much about these plausible arguments that the Colossians were facing. But based on what we know about Colossae as a very diverse city uh, religiously, and, and based on what Paul says later on in the letter, we can be pretty sure that uh, these, these teachers were coming into the church. And they were saying, hey, Christ is great. He taught and said some pretty great stuff. But if you really want wisdom and knowledge, you also have to do this and that. But Paul writes and he says, no, look to Christ. He's all you need. It's only in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found. And this relationship between wisdom and knowledge is important here. Uh, one of, another one of my professors at Covenant, John Collins, defines wisdom as skill and the art of godly living. Wisdom is knowing how God calls us to live and then orienting our lives in a way that's, that's 
uh, pleasing to him and glorifying to him. Wisdom is, is very active. It affects all of our life. But Paul also ties this wisdom with knowledge. And when Paul says all knowledge here, he means all knowledge. All things were created through Christ. But he's also talking more specifically about God's great plan to save his people through Christ. So he's putting knowledge, which is cognitive, together with wisdom, which is active. As we're captivated by God's plan to redeem and to save his people, it should, it should lead to an, a response in our life of joy and thanksgiving. And notice the, way, notice the imagery that Paul uses here. He says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. This, this sounds exclusive, doesn't it? There's only one place that these things can be found. We saw earlier that one of the, the narratives in our culture is what right do you have to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them? So Paul claim, when Paul claims that there's only one place that truth and wisdom and knowledge can be found, that seems offensive to us. Uh, but one of my favorite, I think there's actually a really beautiful relationship between exclusivity and inclusivity here. Uh, one of my favorite biblical scholars says that wisdom and truth are hidden in Christ in the sense that they, they are treasures that have been deposited in him and are now stored up in him. Anyone who comes to know Christ by faith can draw from his store all the wisdom and knowledge that exists. So yes, it's only in Christ that we can find the wisdom and the knowledge and the truth that we're looking for. But Christ has come to offer himself to all people. Anyone who knows their need of Christ and who places their faith in him can, can draw from all his wisdom uh, and knowledge as they grow in, uh, more and more uh, in him. And I think if we can find knowledge and wisdom anywhere, if we can kind of manufacture our own knowledge and wisdom like counterfeits, then truth becomes cheap. But if, it, but if, we can find, if Christ is the only place that we can find wisdom and knowledge, then it becomes extremely valuable. And Christ has come to make that wisdom and knowledge accessible and known to all people. So the relationship between this exclusivity and inclusivity of, of this treasure is a little bit like the ending of the movie National Treasure. Uh, admittedly, not the greatest movie ever, but it has Nicolas Cage in it, so that's pretty cool. Um, it, it, it was, that movie is 15 years old now, which is wild to me. Uh, anyway, you, you remember what happens at the end. Benjamin Gates, uh, Abigail Chase, and Riley Poole have found the treasure that they've been looking for. They had to steal the Declaration of Independence to find it, and so federal agents have been chasing them the whole time. And when the federal agents come to the church where the, the treasure's been found, Benjamin Gates gives the declaration back, and one of the agents says, so I take it you found the treasure. And Gates says, yep, it's about five stories beneath your feet. So they sit down and they have a conversation about what to do with the treasure now. And both of them agree that the treasure is too valuable for any one person to have. And so they decide to share it with all people. They divide the treasure up and they send parts of it to museums all over the world so that everyone can see it and benefit, benefit from it and learn from it. The treasure has been hidden for hundreds of years, but now that it's been found, now that it's, that, that it's been revealed, they share it with all people. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. 
Christ is God's mystery who has now been revealed to all people. And it's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found. All other counterfeit treasures are worthless. The, the value and the fullness that we long for is, can be found in Christ. The, the, this treasure can be found exclusively in one place, in Christ. But this mystery, this treasure, Christ, has, has been made known. And Paul wants the Colossians, the, the Laodiceans, all people, to know Christ. The treasure is inclusive because it's now available to all people who come to faith in Christ. So there's beautiful kind of exclusivity and wonderful inclusivity in Christ. So how are we called to respond to this? Well, we see uh, one way in verse 5. Paul encourages the, the Colossians and says he rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. He knows that they're, they're facing plausible arguments and they're, they're tempted to listen to these arguments and to find their treasure elsewhere. But Paul knows that they've placed their, their faith in the real thing, in Christ, and they've remained firm in him. I think we too are called to stand firm in our faith, even as we interact with uh, some of the counterfeit narratives in our culture, to place our faith in Christ and to stand firm in him, to grow in our assurance that it's only in Christ that all of the, the, wisdoms of, uh, the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found, and to trust that it's only in Christ that we can know how to live wisely and in a way that's, that's pleasing to God, in a way that he has created us to live. And I know that we, we struggle with sin and with doubt at times. I know that this is hard. But as Christ works in our lives, uh, applying his grace and mercy to us, we're called to grow in the firmness of our faith and in our assurance that it's in Christ alone that we see God's great saving acts in the lives of his people. And similarly, I think we're, we're called to be billboards uh, to, to those around us of the fact that Christ has made a way to the Father, that through Christ we see all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge, but we're not called to keep that to ourselves. We're called to share it with others to bring others into the community of God's people that are growing up in their assurance of Christ, of, of, of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery of Christ, to lovingly help others to see the, the counterfeit narratives in our culture and to point them to the real narrative, which is God's work in the world, to pray that God would reveal the mystery of Christ to people of all different nations and ethnicities and languages, and that he would use us as instruments in our neighborhoods and communities and schools and workplaces as he does so. So we've seen God's mystery and God's treasure, and now we get to see God's grammar. And you may be thinking, why in the world are we about to talk about grammar? Well, if you've been listening to anything other than Gloria over the past few weeks, which you may not have been, uh, you may have heard Taylor Swift's new song, Me. Well, one of the lines in that song is, songs is, hey kids, spelling is fun. And then she goes on to talk about how you can't spell awesome without me. So if, if Taylor Swift can make spelling fun, I think, I think you, we can talk about grammar for a little bit. Uh, and we see this in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is a classic example of Paul's use of what's called the indicative and the imperative. 
that first statement, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, is indicative. It indicates something, or it makes a statement that's true. But then that's followed by an imperative, so walk in him. An imperative is a command. It asks someone to do something. This flow of indicative and then imperative is what the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson calls the grammar of the gospel. The foundation of the gospel is that Christ died to take away the punishment that we deserve for our sins, and then he was resurrected to new life three days later so that we can have eternal life in him. There's nothing that we can do, be, or say to earn our salvation. It's only possible through what Christ has done for us. As soon as he brings us to faith in Christ, we're saved by what what Christ has done. But we're called to respond to this by walking in him, by living the lives that he calls us to live, by being rooted in him, by being established in the faith, uh, by being built up in Christ, and by uh, responding, by abounding in, in thanksgiving for all the things that he's done in our lives. Christ has wiped away our sins on the cross, and we're called to respond accordingly. So how does the the grammar of the gospel speak to some of our cultural grammar? We don't often really think of of culture having grammar, do we? But I, I think it's there if we listen for it. And a lot of times our cultural grammar is imperative and then the indicative. I think we see this in two ways. Um, the first one is, is actually one that we heard uh, through one of the cultural narratives that Keller talks about. It says, you have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says. That entire statement is an imperative. Be yourself, don't care. I think if we were to go on to maybe finish that statement, it would say something like, you have to, you have to be yourself because you're fine just the way you are. You don't have to care. Don't change. It's imperative and then the indicative, but it's stagnant. It doesn't really lead anywhere. It doesn't lead to to change or growth. It isn't really rooted in anything. There's, There's nowhere to be built up or established. But in the grammar of the gospel, we see that we can't save ourselves, that Christ accepts us just the way we are. But then he begins to work in our lives, building us up and forming us into what he's created us to be. And I think there's another way that we hear the imperative and then the indicative in our culture. Uh, Many of us may have heard this one. It it says something like, work hard because you're defined by what you do. Or stated another way, work hard because you're only fulfilled by what you do. Both of those are imperative and then indicative. But notice that there's there's kind of very little foundation there. This narrative asks us to keep building and building and to keep working and working, but we never really know if we've done enough to be accepted. It can get exhausting. Uh, On January 30th of this year, just just four days before Tom Brady would go on to win his sixth Super Bowl, 60 Minutes posted a video on their YouTube channel of an interview that they did with the quarterback back in 2005, right after he had won his, his third Super Bowl. And the interviewer asked him, so what does it feel like to win? And Brady responds and he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater out there for me? I mean, some people may say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream. But me, I think, man, it's gotta be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27 and what else is there for me? 
then the interviewer asks him, so, so what's the answer? And Brady just kind of tosses up his hands and he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Do you hear the longing there? Brady has reached the pinnacle of success. He's worked hard and he's reached the top and it seems to have paid off. But he gets up there to the top and he looks around and he says, is this it? Have I worked hard enough? Why do I feel like there's something more? He's followed the imperative, but he's still waiting on the indicative. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with working hard and being successful. Tom Brady will rightly go down as one of the the greatest quarterbacks in history. But what would it look like to start with the indicative and then walk in the imperative? That's what Paul's encouraging us to do in this passage. Um, he said, Paul says that you, you have access to all the wisdom and knowledge that are available in Christ. You're assured in, in God's mystery uh, in his great redemptive story that's at work in the world to save his people. You aren't defined by what you've done, but by what, what Christ already did. And in response, we're, cra- we're called to walk. And Paul uses this, this language of walking in a similar way that we do. It's kind of a metaphor for how we're, we live our lives. It refers to our ethical conduct. So once we've received Christ by God's grace, we're called to respond by walking after him, by following him, and, and to, to live our lives the way he calls us to live. And Paul fleshes this out for us, uh, thankfully, a little bit. First, he says, he, he calls us to be rooted in Christ. And notice that this is passive. He says, we don't root ourselves in Christ. Uh, we are rooted in Christ. God roots us in Christ by his grace. And we're called to remain rooted in him, to allow our roots to go, grow deep into Christ and into the truth of the gospel. And being rooted is this really beautiful picture of standing firm in all sorts of situations and not being blown around. But then Paul says uh, we're called to be built up, to grow, uh, to build on the foundation that's firm like the root of a tree. And it's actually, it's a construction metaphor. Uh, He says we're, we're called to allow God to be at work in our lives, building us up and constructing us and forming us into the structure that he's called us to be. And then he switches to a more legal metaphor. Um, He says we're called to be established in our faith in Christ. This reminds me of those signs that you'll see sometimes on the side of buildings that are like carved in stone. It'll say established in 1904 or something like that. And as soon as you see that, you know that that building or that business has a history. It has a story. It was established and ever since then it's continued to exist or to grow. And, and those of us um, who are believers, we've seen the ways that the Lord has established us in the faith and has continued to be at work in our lives ever since then. It's a joy to share this story with those around us, sharing uh, the Lord's grace and work and faithfulness in our lives. And then finally, uh, we're called to abound in, in thanksgiving. When we know that Christ has done it all, that he's wiped out the punishment that we deserve for our sins, we're called to give thanks to him. We're called to give thanks for his grace and his mercy and his steadfastness, to give thanks for the roots that he's given us in him and and for the growth that he empowers in us. 
And there are any number of ways to give to abound in thanksgiving in, in response to what the Lord has done. We do this through worship, through prayer, uh, through giving our, our financial and temporal resources, offering those up to the Lord. There are many ways to respond in thanksgiving to what the Lord has done in our lives. But it's all a response. The imperative only comes after the indicative. So how does Paul seek to defend us from plausible arguments and counterfeit narratives? Well, he shows us the real thing. He encourages, encourages us in the truth that God has given us his son, that we can receive Christ in faith. And so we're called to walk, to know that we cannot earn God's love, but once that love has been given to us, we're called to walk in it and to grow in it. God roots us in Christ so that we might walk in him, not blown around by plausible arguments. So as we conclude, I just want to to briefly recognize that this is a journey. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian who talks about the grammar of the gospel, uses the illustration of a person who's learning a second language. He says that one of the most difficult things to learn is the grammar. But as you practice it, as you walk in it, you get better and better at it. Our walk with Christ is similar. The the imperative and then the indicative, one of the counterfeit narratives in our culture, is so deeply ingrained in us. We often think that we have to earn God's love or to earn our salvation, to work hard. But Paul points us to Christ. It's in Christ alone that we can live in the grammar of the gospel. Christ is God's mystery. He came to die the perfect death on the cross and, and to wipe away the death that we deserve for our sins. And then he was resurrected three days later so that we may have new life in him. Friends, it's in Christ alone that we find the foundation, the rest, and the fulfillment that we so desire. And it's Christ alone that empowers the growth and the hope that we so desire. Let's walk in that hope today. Let's pray.